This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. So hello, this is Yana Byers from the New Books Network, and we are here with Elizabeth Otto, the answer, the author of Haunted Bauhaus. Hi, Libby. How are you? Good, thanks. Nice to talk to you. Oh, it's great to talk to you. Um, so I absolutely loved this book. Um, and I want to say that it's, it's also just beautiful in this way that I, you don't expect history books to be. You have so many wonderful images. Um, and it's, it's laid out good. I love your font. It's a really beautiful book. Thanks. Um, the font, I don't know if you've, um, if I gave you a version that would have had a note at the end of it, but it's actually a Bauhaus font that we chose for the cover and the headers and the page numbers and things. It's designed by one of my favorite uh, two little known Bauhäusler, Xanti Shavinsky, and uh, it's been reissued then by Adobe for the centenary. And my designer, the wonderful Jarrett Fuller, uh, found it and said, hey, how about we use this? So I was really, really happy with it. So why don't you just tell me if you could begin um, telling, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you? Where'd you go to school? And why, uh, how you got interested in the Bauhaus? Sure. Yeah. So I am a professor of art history and visual studies now situated in a gender studies department at the State University of New York at Buffalo. And I have been working on questions of gender and sexuality really since I was an undergraduate at Oberlin College. I had a wonderful mentor named um, Pat Matthews, who just passed away a year ago, actually, too young. And she really inspired a bunch of us to engage with questions of gender and sexuality. So I you know, remember as an undergrad writing, I look back on this when I think about my own students, you know, sometimes they look so young, but they are interested in sometimes very grown up questions. So I remember myself writing a paper for her on porn and, you know, sit like renting a porn video at a store and like sitting with my friend and watching and taking notes and then reading feminist theory on porn, you know, like with this sort of utmost seriousness about a, a, a very racy topic. And I, I just think I was curious about, um, about human sexuality and representation, but then also gender dynamics and power and how all of these things play out and sometimes get worked out in pictures. And then, so I did my master's at Queen's University in uh, Kingston, Ontario, and my PhD at the University of Michigan. And uh, I 
was lucky enough to have fellowships to live in Berlin then for four years while I wrote, researched and wrote my dissertation. And I discovered the Bauhaus Archive because I was working on Marianne Brandt. And, you know, I knew about the Bauhaus, but I probably knew what most people who'd, you know, done an undergraduate degree in art history knew, that it was kind of the boring modernism. <laughs> and uh, the more I was there and the more I was just seeing what other people were looking at and talking to the archivists and, you know, doodling around in the library, there was all this fascinating material that I certainly had never heard of. And the more I talked to other people, nobody had heard about it um, in the English speaking world. And most of them, most of the people in the German speaking world didn't know about it either. They had a pretty tame idea of what the Bauhaus was. And in fact, um, I, I don't know if it's in Holland or not, but, uh, Germany and Switzerland and a lot of Europe's kind of Home Depot is called Bauhaus. And, and that's actually where I accidentally went when I first tried to go to the Bauhaus archive. So um, you know, it has this association with the practical, you know, the getting things done right in, in everyday culture. And then it, it also just historically is seen as, you know, maybe a kind of popularization of the Russian avant-garde or a kind of artsy craftsy movement that was copying, you know, the British. Uh, and it's, it's really, I think, largely misunderstood. So, um, you know, over time, I just went to more and more archives and just started in my own mind, kind of creating an alternative history of the Bauhaus. And that's what this book then does. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Um, that so this was this isn't your dissertation right this grew out of work from that uh yeah oh no yeah my dissertation now is so so long ago my so long ago was uh, yeah 2003 was on gender construction and photo montage in the interwar period so there i looked at um one Bauhaus artist Marianne Brandt and that and the rest are, you know, it's like Otto Dix, Hannah Hoesch, um, Alice Lex, who's a really interesting political artist who I think hasn't received her due. Um, and uh, but one chapter of that, then I turned into my first book because I got another grant, and, uh, spent a year in Germany really figuring out what Marianne Brandt's photo montages even were, that the shape and the number of pieces in that oeuvre were that was not known. So so that was that first book. And her work does crop up in this, um, in Haunted Bauhaus. But I'd say what was also formative for my thinking was working on the co-authored book that I did with Patrick Rosla called Bauhaus Women, which presents, it's written for a broader audience and it presents 45 Bauhaus women that we think everyone should know. And, you know, so I wrote uh, half of those entries, and uh, we had a couple of guest authors in there as well. And, uh, you know, so, and I was editing things I wasn't writing. So in my mind, then I also have like, this all female Bauhaus, you know, like, what does the Bauhaus look like if we just take out all the men, not, you know, not out of meanness or payback, but just to say, like, you know, what's a a totally different way of telling this history that's been so male dominated, right? Because people tend to think of the Bauhaus as five dudes, you know, and in fact, there were 1,253 people there and 38% of them were women. So um, there's really a lot of history to be teased out there. And it, and it looks quite different and much more interesting when you put the women back into the picture. 
Yeah, okay, here I am. Yeah, kind of always does look a little more interesting when we put the woman back in. And it's that's such an active process of removing women. And it's funny that we tend to think of that as that's almost the status quo, right? And it's easy to forget that the status quo was this decision. So when we make these decisions to tell the stories of women, kind of just, you know, Right, writing this wrong. Um, if I can just say something brief about that, can I? Is that okay? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's it is striking to me how systematic it is by often I think well-meaning people, and part of it is I think particularly prevalent in art history because the field is so dominated by the art market, and what the art market wants is a genius, and women don't fit that mold very well. If they're too weird, they're seen as eccentric or crazy. And, you know, if we look at like um, Camille Claudel and Auguste Rodin, you know, they were both like fiery and weird and brilliant sculptors. And she was institutionalized, you know, and he was a hero. And um, so I, I just see them routinely little gestures that make them smaller or just don't bring them up. And, and it's, it's odd. It's it's frustrating, I think. Yeah, full absolutely frustrating. And I mean there's there's the history of the academy as well, like how who's telling the stories and who's interest what you're interested in. Right. And who's even allowed in the door, as you're saying, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. All right. Um okay, let's uh pivot over and let's talk about haunted Bauhaus. So Tell me what uh, what does this book do? What do you consider to be your greatest accomplishment with this work? This book um, takes the notion of haunting seriously and uh, you know sees the Bauhaus as an institution that's been so formative for modernism but is so misunderstood and really broadens out the history to retell uh, a history of the Bauhaus that is much richer. So that, you know, is a broad statement, but I'd say that's really its accomplishment. And I um, drew a lot on Avery Gordon's book, Ghostly Matters, which I think does a great job of articulating um, haunting, which was has been my sort of formative concept since way before I read that book. Like somehow I knew that was what this book was about. But uh, Avery Gordon talks about how all histories and stories are kind of haunted by these figures that are, you know, almost like ghosts that we see in our peripheral vision, you know, that are sort of asking to be talked about and and to be let out and to tell their stories. And so that's really what this book does through um, focusing on essential aspects of the Bauhaus that I think haven't received their due. So the first part is on uh, the experimental religions and even occult movements that Bauhaus members were participating in, uh, which were really influential, especially in the early Bauhaus. And I'm not the only one to say that about the early Bauhaus, but I, uh, it, it hasn't been talked about much in English. And then I also then you know, explain how these threads of it never go away. A lot of people see when the Bauhaus makes this turn from early on, when the slogan is, um, you know, to to unite arts and and craft together. Um, the the slogan then in 1922 becomes 
uh, art and technology, a new unity. And a lot of people see that as, you know, okay, it's just completely objective and scientific and there's no room for spirituality. And that's not true at all. There's a real threat of utopianism, an interest in what light can do. And a lot of the people who are making these um, high-tech objects like Laszlo Mohoynaj knew about and had participated to some extent in these experimental religions like Mazdaznan that uh, were informative for the for the early Bauhaus, which was a kind of amalgamation uh, new religion that I can I can talk about more if you'd like. Um, but even people like Joost Schmidt, who's seen as you know pretty hardcore graphic design guy. Uh, he was teaching students about the chakras um, and sort of how they worked in the body and how they influenced creativity all the way until the institution closed in 1933. So that's the first part. The second part, then the middle chapters are all on gender and sexuality. The first uh, of those, chapter two, is on what I call shadow masculinity. So thinking about how Bao Häusler are trying to create, in a way, kind of a new man, uh, as you know, constructivism was, for example. <clears throat> um, and they're interested in, you know, rebuilding what uh, an an ideal of an artist in the wake of the First World War. At the same time, they always seem to shadow these figures with images of manhood that are somehow wounded or ineffectual or. Um, inappropriate, you know, have inappropriate desires, they're always kind of undercutting this figure at the same time. And that balance, I think, is really uh, important because uh, Klaus Tevelight in his influential book, Male Fantasies from the 70s, talks about how um, these kind of new man figures start to feed fascist manhood. So in a way, they're building a critique in. The third chapter is on new forms of femininity, because I had this alternative archive of the Bauhaus in, in my mind, I didn't just want to be, you know, do another like, look, there's the new woman at the Bauhaus kind of a thing. I wanted to think about, you know, is there a project that I see uh, women particularly working on? And uh, to me, that's really about um, kind of modular design and transformation as a theme that comes up in their design and in their self-styling. So they're looking at kind of change, adaptable design, and how that applies to the fact that that women's roles have really changed, right? They've got the vote, they've got new uh, employment possibilities, and yet they're also still struggling then to be kind of women in, in a man's world. And I conclude that chapter by looking at self-portraits uh, by Marianne Brandt and by Gertrude Arndt, who is on the cover of the book. And she's, I think, a particularly fascinating case because she's a, a tale of a Bauhaus uh, designer who is incredibly successful as a weaver. She's like their main rug weaver and uh, considered a great colorist. Um, but she'd really wanted to be an architect and she was dissuaded from doing that at the Bauhaus, which happened to many women. And she eventually kind of just refused uh, to practice her craft once she achieved a certain status of, you know, past a, one of her, her tests. She just thought, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. And when she returned to the institution, she was the wife of uh, a master, her fellow former classmate, 
Alfred Ant, and she just made these really strange self-portraits that are all about kind of refusing to perform, refusing to be productive and forward-thinking, which is what the Bauhaus is all about. So, yeah, go well, ahead. hold on one sec before like we move on into the queer Bauhaus, which I'm so excited about. One of the things that I really loved uh, in chapter four, or I'm sorry, in chapter one, was um, well this idea of haunting, right? Of this kind of this liminal space that women take, that the spirits take, and so I see. Um, one of the points that I think you make really well in chapter one is that there is this very porous wall between spirituality and science, right? In this way that we don't necessarily think about, or we, it's, it's a line we moderns draw much more clearly, right? Yes. Yeah. And that is, is you see that really clearly in the 19th century in journals like Sphinx that um, are, you know, about the science of, of the occult. This is, this is considered a scientific field. And, you know, to all of us, like, it's so weird. We don't even like that just gets written out of history too, because it makes no sense to us. You yeah. Know? We can't, we can't even make sense of that. Yeah. So this gets kind of, you know, to go back and say like, well, what were the conversations they were having and, and what seemed possible to them, you know, and to take those seriously, like, you know, not, isn't it silly that, that they thought that, um, you know, you could read oracles in the clouds or whatever, but to realize like that, oh, that's just the tip of the iceberg. You know, you know, Rorjaks, Rorjaks actually come out of a tradition of believing that inkblots can manifest spirit presences that are all around us. And, you know, I mean, who hasn't gotten freaked out in their own basement or something, you know, I mean, absolutely. And, and to be in a world where imaging technology is slowly revealing all kinds of things that we thought we knew were there, like, say, you know, the bones in, in your hand when it's x-rayed, or things that we think may be there, you know, some of which are true, like, whatever, electrons or, or other things, yeah. which, you know. Yeah, and it's not so big a jump, is it, to think yeah. that you can look at a picture of your hands and see the bones and then look that you see, think that you can look at a picture of a room and see spirits. Right, exactly. And when uh, Röntgen did that uh, x-ray of his wife's hand and showed it to her, she screamed and said, I've seen my death, you know, and then this became the most repro- reproduced image in uh magazines and journals worldwide around 1900. So, you know, there's a real fascination and hunger for like, you know, they feel like they're on the edge and the visual world is unlocking this for them. So, you know, what the, what the limits of that are, are perhaps clearer to us in hindsight, but, you know, we need to take them seriously for, for what those experiments were and what they meant to them at the time. Yeah, well, you know, um, I had a colleague uh, once who said to me that science is always wrong eventually. So, you know, he's right. Who knows what we believe is going to be ridiculous in the future, right? Right. I know. Red wine is good for you, for example. That one's recently (laughs) been debunked much to many people's chagrin. (laughs) No, I believe that. I'm I'm keeping that one. (laughs) I'm I'm glad that coffee is back on, you know. <laughs> That's great for us. Um, so the, I think it's interesting to take this, like these fungible boundaries kind of idea and then think about um, laying out masculinity or ideal femininity and that there's also, we, we see a lot of slippage there, right? I'm not 
I'm not sure I completely understood your, your point there. So can you just- Okay. Yeah, let's start the question over. I just, um, I'm thinking about when I'm, when reading chapter two and ideal, like the ideals of masculinity that we're trying to get, and then through chapter three, femininity, that the um, Bauhausler, how is that? That was- Bauhausler. Bauhausler. German is not one of my languages. That's all right. Yeah, but so if we, I'm consulting with Google, and so I've had to like spell this out for them because it's going to be a voiceover. So I wrote like bow hoy slur. <laughs> Excellent, that helps me too. Okay, so if we look at the ideals of masculinity and then the ideals of femininity, we can see that that's not um, as easily marked either a hundred years ago. Right. You mean that they're still really playing around with what it is to be a modern gendered person? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then that that makes a nice link into queer Bauhaus. Yeah. Yeah. And this has been, you know, such a lacuna in the literature, which doesn't make any sense to me, you know, given you know, given my biography where I I got into art history because I was interested in gender studies. And this, you know, seemed like such a great place to do it. And so um, I think maybe, I don't know, five or seven years ago, I gave a talk in Berlin and someone said about Queer Bauhaus, when I was just really starting to think about this and had identified Max Piper Vattenpool and was thinking more broadly about queerness and and what I wanted to explore and, and how best to do that. And even just what what the archive was, but, you know, so someone in the audience kindly said, who else is working on a queer Bauhaus? And I was like, nobody, but please come and join me. (laughs) There's lots of work to do. So, right. I mean, I think the institution queer has so many meanings, right. And so I, in this chapter, I both wanted to kind of surface queer identities that were clearly central to a few Bauhäusler's lives, but then also to kind of, you know, especially in the case of uh, Margaret Camilla Leiteritz, to um, the thinking about singleness studies has been really helpful, especially in that case, because I think there's been a tendency to go back and want to claim people who whose partners we don't know about as queer, um, you know, to always, to assign them a sexuality that they mm-hmm. haven't been given in the past. And this has been often cast um, and, and seemed also to me when I was reading it as kind of reparative to sort of, you know, allow them, you know, to speak for someone's history with the assumption that they could not speak openly in their own time. But, um, you know, singleness studies kind of points out that 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 too can be a a violence to, you know, assign love and sexuality to someone when we just don't know. And Margaret Camilla Leiteritz was an archivist. And uh, so she was, she curated exactly what she wanted to leave behind. It included some beautiful new clothes that she just bought, um, even though she was quite elderly and they still had the tags on them. I think she just maybe wanted some good options for the funeral. I don't know. But um, but she, uh, you know, destroyed her documents and letters and, uh, you know, left a lot of extremely abstract paintings that ac- actually represent scientific 
graphs. So, um, you know, it's sort of, and she left the graphs with them. So, so you know what, what they're, they're showing. So she's very clear about what she'll let you see and what she won't. And yet some of her other works definitely uh, are overflowing with images of female same-sex desire. That doesn't necessarily mean that she was involved with a woman. You know, she may have been, she may not have been. So to kind of give space for what the work gestures to without, you know, trying to write a biography of someone who, you know, clearly was saying no thank you to that. Um, and yet to also then, uh, on the third hand, to uh, you know, say what we know about her and why she's an amazing artist who really... You, you, a lot of these... Um, People, once you find out what they did, they they accomplished really important things for the school, for the history of design. So Leiteritz, for example, uh, was one of a couple students who was very successful in the competition to imagine what Bauhaus wallpaper would look like. And wallpaper was important because it was a technology then that allowed for quick treatment of walls and apartments. Germany at the in the interwar period, as much as Europe had a crisis of housing for workers, affo- affordable housing, and was was really needed. So you know, to go in and paint, do multiple co- coats of paint in apartments was very time consuming, and wallpaper could give you something clean and and nice looking, and yet you know it would be done quickly. So uh, students, there was were uh, instructed to come up with designs and. Uh, I think there was a cash prize and she, a a third of the designs that went into production were hers. And there was another student, I think it was Hans Fischli, who had a couple more than she did. But then she also supervised the production with the Rasch company and the wallpaper is what kept the Bauhaus afloat during the um, depression, the Great Depression and all the way up till 1933. They had money to relocate to Berlin and restart as a private institution because of the wallpaper. So, um, you know, it was, she was kind of at the helm of a major change in how apartments were outfitted. And Hannes Maya bragged about the tens of thousands of apartments that had been outfitted with Bauhaus wallpaper in a few years. Oh, wow. I had no idea about this. This is very interesting in the idea of the importance of wallpaper. I know. I know. After we all spent years ripping it down, it was actually once really cool. (laughs) Well, and such a functional response, right? It's such a functional way to go about making your home seem enjoyable. Right. And just having it, you know, ready, like the idea of an apartment, of the perfect apartment for anyone to step into is, you know, we kind of rebel against something that's not personalized, but for them to have something like clean and functional and modern was, that meant a lot, you know, that was important to people. Um, yeah. Should I say more about, about go back to the queer Bauhaus topic more? Yeah, actually, I would love you to talk about a little bit more about that. Yeah. Great. So um, I was, I, I tried to think about this as broadly as I could. And the, it's not that the Bauhaus was a gay friendly institution. In fact, uh, importantly, under paragraph 175, male homosexuality was still criminalized in uh, the Weimar Republic, even though, you know, so many gains, uh, including enfranchisement of women and kind of everybody, anyone who was adult, that was so important. And yet on this issue, the um, 
the, the new government and the new constitution was just as uh, regressive as it as Germany had always been. So uh, there was a huge problem at the time with blackmail of men, uh, even for the suspicion of homosexuality. So there were there was a problem of suicides because of this. And um, the reformer uh, Magnus Hirschfeld, who created the first globally, the first Institute for Sexual Science in Berlin, uh, it existed for the same years as the Weimar Republic and also the Bauhaus itself. He was, this was one of his main campaigns is to organize and get rid of paragraph 175. They didn't succeed, but it certainly created a huge discussion about this that cut through all levels of society because indeed, you know, this, this issue of uh, the criminalization of homosexuality cut through all levels of society. So um, the first gay rights film uh, came out in 1919 and Magnus Hirschfeld worked on the project and he's actually interviewed or or he he sort of does a therapy session with the main character uh, in the middle of the the film. Uh, The main character is played by Conrad Veit, which, you know, in retrospect is kind of hilarious because it's a silent film. So there are these long periods of them just sitting there talking to each other. And then every once in a while, an intertitle, you know, saying, like, you know, um, love between men is natural. But it's very earnest and and it's the first gay rights film in the world. And uh, so Berlin really was was very open. There was there were all of these journals for um, both queer men and queer women that circulated nationally and even internationally that helped sort of create community across long distance. And uh, there were there was an amazing club scene. So, uh, you know, to think that all of this would be absent from the Bauhaus made no sense. And of course, once I started having a much broader knowledge of it, it it was popping up everywhere. And so um, the in the archives, there's um, one application that would have that that I talk about in the chapter um, by someone named Hans Volker. And Hans Volker had already studied at the um, predecessor institution, the Academy of Fine Arts in Weimar, uh, had studied sculpture, had done some other things that normally at that stage of the Bauhaus would have meant he would have been admitted. They they took a lot of students for the preliminary course who had a good background and, you know, sort of saw how they did. And the preliminary course kind of filtered some people out. And at the end of this application letter, Hans Volker says, um, you know, recently I obtained legal permission to dress in men's clothing and uh, I am making use of this uh, and signs the letter Hans Volker, formerly known as Johanna Volker. And so it's a case of, of someone who is trans. And um, this person wasn't ever in the school. So we don't know what happened, um, just that the application was declined and there's no record of why. But it does seem quite likely that it was, you know, that, that this person was discriminated against. So, 
you know, there's things like that. There's, uh, there's the case of uh, Anna Marie Hennings, who had a relationship with a woman and then left where it just seems like certainly this was not particularly a supportive environment. But there are also people like Max Pfeiffer-Wattenpool, who joined the school in 1919 and was gay. We don't know if people around that around him knew that at this point. Um, but, you know, he definitely thrived there. He was, Gropius thought he was an amazing artist, which he was. He worked in all different kinds of workshops. He had kind of a special permission to just kind of do what he wanted. And um, he's remembered for paintings that I don't particularly, I mean, they're fine, but they're kind of colorful, fovis landscapes or, um, but he took great photographs. He learned from his friend Florence Henri, who also went to the Bauhaus. It's as far as we know where she learned to photograph. And they became good friends later uh, in Essen and were all connected and hanging out in. Um, yeah. Okay. So this circle of uh, lifelong friends included uh, Margrethe Schall, who's Henry's partner, who was also at the Bauhaus, uh, the weaver Greta Villers, who was also just his good friend. Um, they took pictures of people like the dealer, uh, art dealer, Johanna I, kind, seemingly almost in, in drag as a woman. You know, she looks kind of like uh, divine is what she reminds me of the most. Um, and, you know, you can just kind of get, gather the outlines of these other circles of uh, Bauhaus members who were queer or queer allied and allied and uh, were spending time together and exchanging pictures and talking about, um, you know, Max Pfeiffer-Wattenpool uh, writes to Greta Villers and says, I made, I made more pictures. Um, they are, as one might say, very perverted. <laughs> and... Um, you know, so there's a sense of play about gender and representation that has been totally missed from the Bauhaus. And that's really what this chapter looks into. And then also just, you know, images of same-sex desire that get played out, especially in photography. Max Pfeiffer-Wattenpool takes several photographs of uh, a young Italian man in uh, an advanced state of undress that are, you know, so sexy and uh and and he's standing by a bed which i always think it's like they say in a movie um if you see a gun it's going to go off uh, so um and uh florence henri who i think is you know known for her iconic self portraits also for photographs of marguerite uh, Margarita Schall, who's not always identified as her partner, um, does, you know, really great images of, of kind of new woman, lesbian identity, a kind of, you know, independence in the way she's imaging these women. But she also does softcore when she is out of money because she's cut off from her inheritance um, through uh, you know, as I understand it, it would be her inheritance was located in the U.S. and she was in occupied France, I think. So at any rate, she 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 was independently wealthy. And for a period of time, she couldn't access her money. So she taught other uh, photographers, including Giselle Freund and other great female photographers. But uh, she also then did commercial work that included nudes that were uh, reproduced in mainstream journals, some of them, and some of them don't seem to have been reproduced anywhere. They really just seem more to have been 
uh, images that she would have um, maybe just circulated among her friends or perhaps perhaps sold. Um, there are these, there's a whole great series of a woman wearing nothing but a belt. And, uh, you know, they're, they're just, you know, I think to integrate these into the oeuvre also of artists that we know are, are important. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Um, I mean, there's, um, <clears throat> hold on, let me start over here. Uh, there, you know, when you're thinking about like queer and historically queer, basically any time up until just a few years ago, there are these rules for queer behavior, right? It's where everybody can read you as queer. You're definitely gay, but it's got to be within these limits that are deemed acceptable. So other people don't have to deal with it. Yeah. Right. 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 And there's also, you know, there's there's playing at being queer, too. Right. Which happens in so many institutions that are not necessarily uh, at all open, like the military. Um, So, you know, thinking about the role of that was was another thing I was thinking about, because there's lots of with all those fun Bauhaus parties, there's lots of men who are not known to have had uh, relationships you know, sexual relationships with other men, but they're, you know, they're doing that thing that happens in so many institutions where they dress up, uh, one of them dresses up as a women, woman and they, you know, do a tango together or something like that, you know? Yeah, um, so it's, kind of it's, performatively uh, outre. Right, exactly. That sort of carnivalesque, you know, let's, let's play, at, you know, let's flirt with this idea within a context where it's boundaried and, you know, won't seep into our daily lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, these queer codes that we still recognize today are kind of exploding across Weimar culture in print media and lived life. So, you know, the Diamond Club, the women's club, Violetta, was uh, circulating flyers for, you know, all female uh, events where, you know, maybe they all went to the beach together or maybe um, in one of my favorite advertisements, they circled there. There's a cream puff eating contest, you know, like, um, you know, kind of silly, kind of sexy. And, um, yeah, you know, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really, really fun. Um, and, and they're speaking, you know, they're, they're gesturing towards the kind of things that we would recognize of like, you know, celebratory, like, you know, liberation from shame, you know, just creating community and being who you are. And, you know, aspects of that are, are really at the heart of the Bauhaus very broadly. So I think to explore the, the queer manifestations of that was really important to restore to the institution. Excellent. That is so interesting. God, this sounds like it must have been so much fun to do. It was really fun. There were times where I was like, you know, it was fun to do a project that really felt 
so original. And I mean, I should say it took a lot of time and it took a lot of conversation, right? Like, you know, to present this to people and get feedback and, you know, friends read stuff as I was, as I was going along and asked good questions, but, but it's, yeah, it does sometimes feel like, like, you know, to do something really new is, is, is very exciting, especially when it, when it works. I mean, the book isn't out yet, so it feels right now like it all works. I'm sure some of the reviews will, will beg to differ, but, um, but that's okay. You know, that's, that's sort of a mark, mark of success. There's, there's one Bauhaus member, um, who I can definitely send, he's the one where I can send you a picture of his work. So depending on your time, if you'd like, I could say a bit about him, but, um, Whatever you think. Uh, uh, let's see. Where are we time wise? I mean, it's this. It's a podcast, so we can't. We've got all the. We've got freedom. So uh, yeah, tell me about this. Tell me about your guy. So Richard Gruna is someone who I am very interested in, um, and there's not much left. Although uh, someone did just send me information about an archive that maybe has some work. So I'm, I'm hoping there'll be more that'll turn up. But Richard Kruna um, came to the Bauhaus uh, during the early years. And he, there, there was a, one of the figures who was very important and, <clears throat> excuse me, and who has been written out of narratives of the school is a teacher called Gertrude Grunau, who next to Itten really helped shape the spiritual development of her students. So all students had to take a class with her called harmonization studies. In fact, Walter Gropius took, you know, sat in on the class sometimes. Everyone was quite interested in this. And uh, the idea in her class was that you would, uh, there was a kind of, objective sympathy between musical notes, uh, places in the body, kind of feelings in the body, bodily movement, um, and color. And so if one was harmonized, one would sense the body became sort of a perceiving instrument for sensing the resonance between, say, a particular color and a particular musical note or even a chord. And this was, she was a uh, a composer and musician. This was a theory she kept come up with herself, and it was it was hugely influential in the early Bauhaus. <clears throat> and she, I think, was extremely well-meaning and very empathetic. But she also became a bit of a, a gatekeeper uh, in in terms of who was deemed ready to go on to the next step. And this wasn't a bad thing. This was the kind of thing the teachers were doing all the time. Itin would, would do it too, but she would just kind of look at people's spiritual development and say whether or not they needed to stay in the preliminary course or they were ready to choose a workshop. So interestingly in her notes to the master's uh, council, which is the, all of the officially permanent master, she's sometimes considered a master, but she usually wasn't in those meetings. She, um, she, gives these notes and she says of Richard Gruna that basically like there's something he's still discovering about himself that seems to be holding him back. And, you know, 
we have no idea exactly what she meant, but it sure sounds like someone who's in the process of coming out and struggling. Um, so I just sort of put that out there about him. We don't know, but that's a possibility. And he did another semester of the preliminary course and still wasn't deemed ready to go on. So he left, which is true of many Bauhaus members. I mean, lots of people are only there for a semester, um, but it's so formative that we definitely consider them part of the movement. So he went on to become a graphic designer. He was a leftist uh, activist, uh, very involved in um, socialism. And he did this wonderful cover um, called of a book called The Red Children's Republic, which was uh, a camp of uh, you know workers' children that was self-governed for a week. And they also took pictures. And then he uh, and another graphic designer helped uh, help them to put together this book. And he designed the, uh, Gruner designed the cover. Um, and it's just this great abstract red square that, that is made into a flag and a photograph of a youth, um, you know, kind of looking all happy and sunny into the, into the future. And Gruner's great graphic design work is mostly what we have because his archive didn't. So already quite early on, uh, once the Nazis came to power, Richard Gruner was arrested. Um, he was uh, very active as an anti-fascist and was working on an anti-fascist journal, but he was arrested for being gay. He, he was accused and denounced by a neighbor for having had, I believe the quote was something like, a very loud gay party. And uh, he spent the rest of the Nazi period in concentration camps of different degrees of horror. Uh, and uh, his work was destroyed. He um, did survive. He There was a death march at the end, uh, and he managed to just leave that. I think things were pretty chaotic. And he was never rehabilitated or compensated by the regime afterwards. Victims who were in of, of concentration camps, those who survived, were uh, compensated financially, but those who'd been put in concentration camps because of paragraph 175, the anti-gay statute of uh, German law, were never compensated. And no one, you know, he was just ignored. No one did an oral history with him. And he kind of died in, uh, you know, in poverty and without, you know, without that much help. He did have friends who helped him survive, but um, he, he continued to be discriminated against under a paragraph 175, which stayed on the books in Germany until the 1990s. So um, he was, he's, you know, had this really tragic life. At the same time, it was his art that seems to have given him some solace because already in 1945, he made a whole cycle of uh, lithographs that, you know, kind of represent what he experienced in the camps, just the the various horrors of the camps that were, it was kind of a way of, I think, trying to let the ghosts out and, and to show people what it was like to, to suffer. And those have been, been shown. And because they're reproducible in multiples, they, they're held, a set is held in the U S um, Holocaust museum and in various places in Europe as well. So he's, I think a case of, you know, the, the wrongs of the time and, and how the period itself, the institution, but also the period itself couldn't make space for uh, 
you know, queer voices, except in certain, you know, certain guises like graphic design, you know, a bunch of happy kids, that that kind of stuff is all okay. Leftist political activism is okay. But if it's coupled with, you know, a fighting for or or an interest in, in living, you know, just living a free queer life, that is not okay. And that, you know, it didn't kill him, but it, it ruined his life. And um, I think those stories need to be told too. Yeah, absolutely. That is a really tragic, that's so sad. It's so sad. It's, yeah. And I wish, you know, like I'm of an age where I think he died in the in the 80s. You, you know, I would have been a teenager, so I wouldn't have known what to say to some old guy. I also couldn't speak German at that point. <laughs> but, you know, I, I just I feel like I, I just missed, you know, actually going and and having a conversation with these people and saying, you know, tell me, you know, tell me your story. Tell me what you did. Tell you know. Any any works you gave to anyone, you know, that might be hanging on someone's wall that that I can look at, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah I, I know exactly what you're talking about, this realization. I mean, I, my my interest, uh, I'm a 17th century historian, so my people are good and dead, um, yeah. which yeah. is, you know, fair. That's how I like them, actually. If I'm going to talk about who they had sex with, it's best that way. Um, yeah. This, by the way, is not. This like, isn't. Our colleagues who work on cave people, I just feel so bad for them. You know? <laughs> <laughs> was telling me about being really excited about finding a depression in the earth. It was <laughs> like someone had dug a pit, and I was like, "You're so screwed." Wow. Yeah, that's that. I've, I've got inquisition cases at least, yeah. but I, I recognize very much this um, when I developed my kind of obsession with Paris in the 20s, my realization that those, I was still alive. I had, I was alive and a functional human when they were still there. Yeah. Like I just missed Sylvia Beach. Like she died when I was of an age to have understood who she was. Right. Right. I hadn't thought about that, but I lived, I lived in Paris from, that's where I picked up the Dutch boyfriend in 92 Mm. to 93. And I went to Shakespeare and company and people said, you know, um, yeah, it's this kind of weird place. It's really interesting, but it's kind of weird. And there was some like weird woman running it or something. And now like I teach cubism <laughs> and then, and then I do a, a whole unit on women of the left bank and make the case constantly of like, you know, it's fine. Like we can, we can root history in cubism, but we could also tell a completely different story and root our history of the twenties completely in this circle of women, you know, many of whom were involved with each other. And, you know, it's just as rich and just as exciting. And the work is amazing and goes in so many great directions that you wouldn't expect that are much more modern than you would expect, you know, like, God, if there's another exhibition of of Picasso's weeping women, I'm going to hang myself, you know, like, he was a dick, like, he was a good painter, but he was like, he made all the women around him cry. Do we have to like monumentalize that again? No, right. And enough. And he also, he might've starved to death if not for Gertrude Stein. So right. why don't we ever talk about that? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. That was total, total no, but, tangent, but. but it's, I mean, I, I sort of latched onto it because it's, um it's, I think doing that teaching has been a model for how I think about the Bauhaus of like, what if we, what if we like, I mean, of course, you know, we can't ever go back to the zero hour, but like, what if we just tell a, a, a history that's not reactive, but is just constantly pushing, like, there's another story here. There's what's the other story. And it's so, it's so much better that way. 
It's just it's a more it's a fuller picture. It's a more interesting picture. And it actually reflects what was happening, you know, this very rich world, as opposed to the tiny little strands we decide to tell a bit. Right. Yeah. Right. And Cornfellow's function is interesting, but after a while, it gets a little old. <laughs> Fair. All right. <laughs> okay. So in uh, let's let's uh, wrap this up. So tell me about Chapter 5, Red, Red Bauhaus, Brown Bauhaus. Right. So um, the political, uh, the way that I learned the Bauhaus, and I think it's often been talked about, although hopefully that's changing some, but often the political within the Bauhaus is seen as kind of a misstep or, you know, sort of poison seeping in from the outside. And I cast it as much more kind of, uh, you know, reflective of how the Bauhaus was as as the Germans so beautifully say, a child of its time. Um, but also that, um, you know, for example, the communism within the Bauhaus, which was central to its later years, was really the fruition of that utopianism that I talk about in the in chapter one. So, um, you know, it's much less kind of ethereal and spiritual, but it's just as much a hope for a better world for sort of uncovering the good within the world all around us. And um, so in 1927, uh, the, a communist cell is formed within the Bauhaus and uh, a lot of students joined uh, membership actually cost and students didn't have money. So you could often be an activist in something without being an official party member. And uh, it was really central for thinking about, you know, uh, under the director Hannes, the second director Hannes Maya, starting in 1928, this idea of you know creating goods for the masses rather than creating luxury goods, which was a slogan he uh, promoted, and and for thinking about really practicality over aesthetics. Um, of course, there's still a strong aesthetic in everything they're designing, but um, you know communication should be clear. For example, um, apartments should work well. And, um, uh, you know, design should be affordable rather than just simply appearing to look modern. And uh, a lot of um, what what interests me in that, too, is then thinking about things like, you know, photography. What are some of the um, pictures that then come out of this mindset? So I look at the photographer Etel Mitakfora and uh, her images of... Uh, for example, there's a photograph of Lotte Rothschild and uh, Alfred Menzel, who um, married. And so there's a photograph of Lotte Rothschild and uh, Albert Menzel, who um, were both communist activists. He was actually secretly the editor of the in-house handmade communist zine is what I would call it. It's, it's very um, homemade. And she was also a communist activist who went on to write for a communist paper in Frankfurt. And um, Ethel uh, Mittagfora takes this photograph of them where they're, they're it, it's just really this gorgeous image of, you know, two stylish young people who are, you know, they're not, they're looking in the same direction She's leaning on him in this very dynamic way, and he's clearly just intent on 
telling her about something he's really excited about. And it's it's just such a great image of a kind of emerging form of equality, I think, based in, in their politics. Um, and all of them are communist activists, including the photographer. So, um, but I also look at photographs we have of, of Bauhäusler participating in street demonstrations, creating um, you know, agitational uh, propaganda carts to say like, you know, you using Bauhaus graphic design to say workers, uh, you know, you're, you're supposed to be cannon fodder for the next war. You rebel with us against this. There's going to be a demonstration. So um, to, to really look at how their design was important to activism, to, to changing daily life, but also really working in an overtly political manner. And some of what um, I bring into that chapter, uh, for example, I draw on oral histories that uh, Michael Siebenbrot uh, did still in the GDR. He talked to Bauhaus members and uh, they wouldn't give their, their names because in the GDR, you know, everything was so politicized that people were afraid to do that. But they talked about how, you know, even though uh, political activism was shut down in the Bauhaus once Hannes Meyer was kicked out in 1930 and Mies van der Rohe became the third director, and, and this was an attempt to save the school because it was seen by right-wingers in the city of Dessau as, as dangerous and, and Bolshevist. So political activism was suppressed, but they do things like um, uh, they reported that list list four was for the co- voting for the communists. So, you know, that would be a slogan at the time, vote for list four. And uh, the whole Prela, uh, Prela House wing, which was the student uh, block, the block of student work, live in studios, they they just turned off all the lights in the building at night, and then turned on the lights to make a giant four to kind of, you know, beam out to the city, like, this is what we are pro communist. Um, And yet they could still say like, what? No, it was just chance who like was asleep and who had their lights on. So they did stuff like that, that was, you know, not preserved anywhere, but, <clears throat> but was important kind of, uh, time-based activism. Um, but, uh, what also I thought was important to tell, and this is actually what I'm going to be working on in the future is, um, there's another thing I think generally about art history, which is that we so often want our artists to be heroes and our art movements to be on the right side of history. And that's just not how it was. So um, there were uh, conservatives and right-wingers and even Nazis who were in the Bauhaus. There weren't that many. It was a smaller group, but students who came in the early 30s reported uh, the canteen, for example, being kind of divided on party lines, that, um, you know, there, there were certainly enough conservative students uh, right-wing students, that they actually constituted a part of the lunchroom. And uh, this has very important in- implications for them, the Bauhaus afterwards, because the story then that usually gets told is the Nazis shut down the Bauhaus in 1933, more or less true. It was actually shut down by the masters themselves as a final choice to not conform to Nazi uh, demands for, you know, kicking out all foreigners and things like that. Um but the Bauhaus shuts down and the story usually is told then that then everyone goes away. Uh, they all go, they spread the Bauhaus word around the world. And especially 
People like to talk about the Bauhäusler who went to the U.S. and started Black Mountain College, the new Bauhaus in Chicago, and taught at places like Harvard and Yale. So those things are all true, but the vast majority of Bauhaus members uh, didn't leave. They often couldn't leave um, or they chose not to. And there are people like Fritz Ertel, who was an architecture student in the later Bauhaus, who uh, was a Nazi party member. He joined the SS. He was very convinced of uh, his Nazi ideals. And he worked as an architect at Auschwitz. And um, that is where quite a number of his colleagues, eight, if I'm remembering correctly, perished, including Lotte Rothschild, that um, woman I mentioned who was in the photograph by Ethel Mittag-Forda. So, um, and, and people like Friedel Dicker, who, uh, you know, in the meantime had taught Bauhaus methods to 500 children at Theresienstadt um, ghetto and concentration camps. So I think to tell the institution's story also in relation to a politics we all can recognize in retrospect as abhorrent is mm-hmm. important well, because, you know, aesthetics has no inherent politics and it, those ideas, those designs and methods could be used for evil as well as for good. Oh, hold on. Uh, no, my turn to cough here. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So your new work, then um, you're going to be interested in, are you looking at the theoretical idea of like that art has no politics or you're looking more at right wing Bauhaus or tell me where you're going next? Yeah, I'm really interested in kind of telling the story of the Bauhaus, of of the what happens when people stay in Nazi Germany and uh, satellite countries. And um, I think it's going to be sort of through case studies. I The last chapter of the book lays out some case studies. I may, you know, I'll, I'll certainly continue to pursue some of those threads. But basically, I'm interested in how the building itself was used, the massive uh, Bauhaus building in Dessau. It it, be, it <clears throat> was pretty quickly turned into a, a home ex school. And I just was in the archives looking at it. There's a, a real relish in the local press, uh, in the language around how they talk about how this has become, you know, a school for uh, you know, there are photographs of women with, with dolls learning to put on diapers and, um, you know, really kind of traditional ideas about femininity and women all over the institution. So there's a kind of gendered rebuff, I think, inherent in that. It was also, it was such a large building that they could do a lot of things with it. So it was also a Gao school for um, uh, Nazi officers, I think, or, or kind of lower level officers. So it was being used directly for Nazi propaganda. And for a while, it also was an, <clears throat> an institute for rocket research. And, you know, these are a bunch of scientists looking for space, but all the language is about, you know, kind of the future of Germany uh, needing to be in high tech, as in high tech for war. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in, oh, and, uh, you know, it, it must be said that uh, although right-wingers particularly abhorred um, the Bauhaus and the new building movement more generally, their use of a flat roof, right? And they would talk about it in very racist terms. They would say, this is not from here. This is Middle Eastern. This is Jewish. Um, 
but but it it does need to be say said that the Bauhaus's roof did leak, and <laughs> uh, you know there is a good solution for that, which is long known in Germany, and uh, the propagandists loved it when they were able to put a slanted, you know, a a, a regular roof on the Bauhaus. And I have yet to find a picture of what it looked like, but there's a lot of reporting of basically like, slanted roof comes to the Bauhaus. You know, like, Finally, we've gotten rid of this degenerate foreign roof. And oh, you know, right. funny how the, the propaganda sees like just, you know, really stupid things that they cotton onto. Um, so the building is one part of it. Um, I'm, I'm trying to, so, and, and the reason I'll have to do case studies is a lot of, a lot of history was destroyed. A lot of people afterwards retold their history in a light that made them not look bad um, because okay. they need to, you know, move on. So to, to, to think that I could do a comprehensive history of uh, what of the Bauhaus under Nazism, I think is inaccurate but i'm i'm planning to keep digging and and look at you know how people survived if they were trying to resist or or just get by also if they were jewish um how they people like Herbert Baya you know created propaganda even though they saw themselves as un, apolitical or just participated in a kind of passive propaganda a uh, machine I'm interested in Ilsa Failing, who works for uh, Tobis Film, which is the main, uh, you know, Nazi film company, making these, you know, costumes for fluffy historical, um, uh, you know, historical films, uh, you know, kind of screwball comedies. Although I think even at the time, Nazi screwball comedies didn't work really very well. Um, so, you know, I. I don't want to look back and and assign blame, but more to acknowledge that the Bauhaus continues in various forms, um, some of which are resistant, many of which are compliant, some of which are actually actively supporting the Nazi regime. And I, and I want to investigate that more. Mm, all right. Yeah, I'm. I, 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 that's sad. I don't. I don't want. I. You know, that's sad. I want Bauhaus to be awesome, but of course, um, that's. It's the story of an institution. All right. So, yeah, well, I mean, I'll keep thinking about. It. I do sometimes think, like, is this too much of a downer of a topic? Are people going to want to read this book? Um, you know, I haven't gone that far into it, so maybe it'll be a little book. But I, I just feel like it's important to, yeah, not even to say like. You know how you think the Bauhaus is good? Well, it's not all good. <laughs> but to, to, I mean, this is a real problem, right? Like, you know, we, we have this fantasy that that people should, you know, should just, if they don't, if if they find it immoral, they they should go and be a part of something else. And, and it just wasn't always practical, say, or possible sometimes. You know, there was a point when people couldn't, couldn't leave. So... No, of, of course. And uh, I don't think, you know, I don't think when you're in the midst of something, you necessarily understand what's happening around you. Exactly. You know, yeah. I think this is definitely a time where we're seeing that. Right. And I, I mean, I do think like, when, when would I, would I know when the point is where to, to look back 
on this situation, I'm culpable just for being here, you know, like, because initially with people like Kabbabaya, I thought like, he stayed until 1938, like, you know, and he made those kinds of pictures, what a jerk. And then later I thought, I learned more, you know, he was Austrian, he saw himself as apolitical, he was married to a Jewish woman, and he was taking the work he could get, you know, which doesn't excuse what he did. But it certainly, you know, I, I, I don't think my role is to judge. I think my role is to to sort of tell it like it was and also contextualize it. And yeah. Yeah, that's that's our job as historians, right? That's our that's yeah. It's not yeah. my my job is not to try to demonstrate the moral worth of the past. It's to just tell the story. Yeah, yeah. All right. We'll Maybe after that I'll I'll do something really light. Yeah, like <laughs> some like you know, unicorn history or something really enjoyable. Right, 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 right. The history of the rainbow. <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. gonna need a new century. If that's your goal. Yeah, right. 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 It is a little dark. Yeah. And I mean, I should say, you know, one thing I'm also constantly working on on the side is just really telling the story of of Bauhaus women and their work. I'm I'm working on something on Ringel and Pitt. Um Kata Stern was in the in the Bauhaus and they were Walter Peter Hans's first two students and they were just hilarious. And they had this kind of fake advertising studio. I mean, it was partially real, but it was the depression. So no one really needed that much advertising. <laughs> and it was just this really fun, cool collaboration. So I'm interested in that. And then there's also this um, woman, Hilda Hubach, who I wrote a short essay on for um, Bauhaus women, but in the process, I, I, I knew, so she was a photographer. She was a hellion. She, um, you know, uh, got involved with her teacher, Karl Hubach, the painter. And uh, the, her, her parents put a private detective on them and found them in a hotel room. So then they had to get married. Um, and they were, I think, really interesting. He took these, he, he made amazing paintings of her, you know, with a hairdryer and a Marcel Breuer chair, like just as this weird kind of quirky modern woman. And then she seems to kind of drift away from him and goes to the Bauhaus and becomes a photographer. She does worker photography. You know, she's Jewish. So eventually she's first in Vienna, then in the UK and lands in New York. And there, you know, I knew MoMA had some photographs of that she had done, but they, they went into the documentation end of MoMA. So there wasn't not much was known about them. And I read that she'd been a society photographer. So I started Googling and uh, she she took photographs. She was listed somewhere as the, the family photographer of William Sean, who was the editor of The New Yorker. And I found one of his sons, who's a professor at Bennington College. And I was like, do you know anything about this? And he, he thought that was hilarious that someone had said they had a family photographer. Because he was like, <laughs> it wasn't really like that. But he remembered the name. He said, I remember that name being spoken of with reverence. And his brother is Wally Sean, the actor. And so he was sort of talking with Wally while he's older. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And oh, but also when when I first wrote to him, he said, well, I'm I'm looking at a photograph of my father on my desk right now that's by Hilda Hubach. Wow. And um, yeah, so periodically he sends me more family photographs and, and tells me... Um, 
you know, what the, about the context and, and William Sean was, he lived a, a double life, right? So he was a, a really interesting editor for a long time of the New Yorker. When I said his name, my mom right away said, oh, of course. Um, but I'm not the one to uncover this. There have been biographies and memoirs written. He had two families. And so, and he was painfully shy. So I'm very interested in you know, this man who had this double life and this woman who was a hellion and a, and a leftist who comes to New York and remakes herself as a, as a family and children's photographer and advertises, um, in the New Yorker and, uh, you know, just, just what, what those, how those lives seem to intersect. She was known as kind of the only one who could get a good photograph of him because he was so painfully shy. So, so there are much more happy stories that I, I just yesterday Helen happened to send me some photographs and I was just thinking like I've got I've got to write something about this and like go look at those photographs at MoMA and see what I can sort out about her because she had no children and you know she so she's probably like her work is still probably on dozens of pianos somewhere in the greater tri-state area but uh you know no one knows how special she is and how amazing her life is. And so I'd like to tell that story too. I would love to read that story. I hope you tell that. Okay, good. Good. Oh. Well, that'll be the happy, the happy channel. Next to the unhappy channel. I will also uh I will also look forward to hearing about the the dark side of the Bauhaus. So keep, you know, just keep writing. Uh this this has been a wonderful interview. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you so much, Libby. Great to talk to you too, Yana. Um, 